up this phase. Just trying to holler at y'all and see what's going on. Had a lot on my mind reminiscing, trying to figure out these things that are going on my mind. Trying to figure out some puzzles. I'm not here to start nothing. I ain't trying to start nothing. Just got some things that I want to get done. Some things that I want to get solved. Some things I want to enlighten myself with. So maybe y'all take a time and to get the opportunity to stop by and listen to my thoughts. Hope so. Very intellectual. So if you get time, just holler at me. I'm reminiscing all in my room. Just trying to figure out a whole lot of things. Until then, y'all have a great day. And thank you for coming in and listening to me. Thanks. Things gotten so bad lately, um, it's almost like it's unbelievable to believe that the things that happen in the Alabama prison system and how they treat prisoners in this state is really a shame on the state and it's a bad look. Uh, the things that they are doing, they are, they are not only criminal and shameful, they are, they are disgrace. You know, I had an investigator from the uh, Alabama Appleseed reached out to me and it was hard for him to believe that that, that, um, I mean, that there's like evidence that, that Alabama medical examiners are actually harvesting um, body organs and, and things of this nature and, uh, and that DOC uh, officials are in I would say they in agreement with it because of the stalling process of returning turning deceased bodies back to the loved ones even loved ones who are demanding to have their they bodies back and these things are, like I say, they're hard to believe that a government agency, a legitimate government agency, will, will stoop so low and, and do these things. But, but Alabama's in need of, of money right now, and, uh, and, and, and that is a way to make money with so many people dying in the system. And you think about it, you get a few lungs, you get livers, you get hearts, you get kidneys and things like that from all the guys that are dying with nearly 400 this year. And uh, that's a, that that adds up to a lot of money. So I it put it put I put nothing past them, but I do believe that truth will, will come out. I do believe that God sees everything, and, and what's done in the dark will come to the light. And like I said, just unbelievable. But um, uh, and it's hard to believe. And they have lost all their credibility. ADOC, uh, our government officials, people are losing their credibility by the way they treat people, and the lies are adding up. 
and it's catching up with them to the point where you can only lie so so much and you can only lie for so long. So uh, it's real disturbing, so disturbing that I said, man, I w- I'm just in need of a break. I need to get a break from advocacy for a while, just just to clear my thoughts and just to get some rest and just to um, just to this is just pray, sit back and pray and just trust God because God is really the the only answer, the only one that can expose. Uh, we can do our part as people, but God is the only one that can really bring bring exposure to um, to, to to this madness. So, um, man, I just, man, my heart go out to the people that lost so many loved ones and, and people that are hurt as a result of, um, of what's going on in here. People are in pain. You People have lost all they had. A mother losing her child is, is, is the most precious gift that God can give a person and to lose it recklessly in the system to where uh, uh, they don't care. And, and the more they show displays of not caring, the more it encourages uh, other guys, some guys in here to act out. That leads to, to more death and sadness and tragedy, man. So my heart just go out to everybody, but I do think I need a couple of days break and rest because I'm exhausted. Hey, what's up, fam? This is Faze. First of all, I want to thank the Most High for all he do for us, y'all, knowingly and unknowingly. Second of all, I want to thank Jesus Christ for dying on the cross, bringing us back to the Most High bosom. Thank you, Yahweh, and thank you, Yahweh Shai, for all you do for us, knowingly and unknowingly. I want to thank all my interstate and out-of-state for listening, y'all. I know you don't have to do it, but you did it anyway. She get down. She get down. She get down, down. She get down. She get down. She get down. Hey, what's up, fam? You know, um, I've been telling you about the news and how the news is conspiracy with the is the, the people over there that call themselves the ish people is is not real there is not real people you know and every time somebody talk about god or the most high they always shut them down or flick it out so if they're the true children of god and they supposed to be showing people how to walk in the light of God. Whenever somebody speaks about the most high, why is CNN and all these, the network shut those, th- them words down. What you talking about faith? What you talking about faith? There you go. Talking in riddles. All right. Let's analyze. Any more confirmation that the mainstream media is corrupt? We just got our clearest indication yet. CNN is now admitting that they have to get approval from Israel before they run any news pieces about the war in Gaza. Can you imagine that? So CNN, which purports to be an independent news organization, right, the most trusted name in news, has to run things up the flagpole in order to before broadcast. So a CNN whistleblower has come forward admitting to The Intercept that CNN has a longtime relationship with the censor bureau in Jerusalem. So let's just go through this piece. You can see here, CNN runs Gaza coverage past Jerusalem team operating under shadow of an IDF censor, the Israeli Defense Forces censor. So every single Palestinian-related line for reporting must seek approval from the Jerusalem Bureau, according to the whistleblower. Or what the Bureau, when the Bureau is not staffed, like if they're on vacation, then they have to take it to a few hand-picked by the Bureau and senior management 
from which lines are most often edited out with a very specific nuance, the staffer says. So they basically go through and then chop out anything that's not pro-Israel and is, uh, you know, maybe pro. they chop out whatever sort of is pro-Palestinian. Despite the catastrophic debt toll it has inflicted, Israel is losing on the ground and in the court of public opinion. There's no way that this ends that doesn't leave Israel a pariah state with occupation and apartheid on borrowed time, and they know it. So they're doing everything they can. Desperate acts of aggression to provoke a wider conflict with Lebanon, with Iran, with anybody to draw in the US, to save them from the consequences of their own actions. And as Yemen shows, Butcher Biden is reporting for duty. With Europe's proud genocide by his side, they are the ones who have enabled the continuation of Israeli terror. Without them, it would already be over. So take note, Butcher Biden. The ancestors of the Ireland that you claim to be from disown you. Keep our country out of your mouth. And as for von der Leyen and genocidal Germany with your words and deeds supporting Israel in the ICJ, not in our name. The people of Europe stand with Palestine and with South Africa. Major developments from the state of Texas. It's going on offense yet again. The Texas National Guard seizing control of a park that's been at the center of this migrant crisis. It's called Shelby Park. It sits along the Rio Grande River. It served as a landing point for illegals crossing into the U.S. for more than two years. Uh, this means not even the feds can patrol there. Matt Finn, live in Eagle Pass to tell us how it's going. Uh, I guess this is, is this day one or day two, Matt. Good morning. Uh, essentially, day two, this all started developing yesterday, Bill, and it's a rather remarkable situation. Behind me right now is Shelby Park, the park that you were referring to. Our viewers may recognize it. Our cameras have been here for about two years now, showing you the mass illegal immigration that happens right here in this park. You might recall even just a few weeks ago, there was that huge surge of migrants who crossed right here. Well, now under Governor Abbott's emergency declaration, the Texas National Guard has seized control of this park and some surrounding land along the river, put up fencing and razor wire, and kicked out federal border patrol agents, arguing that it's the Biden administration that has perpetuated illegal crossings, so Texas is going to control this land from here on out. Our crews have seen what appears to be Texas National Guard blocking border patrol agents from key areas of the operation here, and senior border patrol agents can- Major develop Something is happening in Alabama. Obviously, we've been covering Alabama since it was brought to my attention. An inmate, someone incarcerated inside of one of their correctional facilities, was about to die. Now we have allegations that bodies are being returned to family members without their organs, without their heart or their brain. The university who does the autopsies per way of contract from the Department of Corrections they basically admit to it, double down on it, and explain why they're able to do this, and you will not believe the explanation. This is a pattern that I'm going to expose here. I want to remind you of reporting we have already done out of Alabama right here at Indisputable. Here it is. An Indisputable exclusive. No other news agency has this. Medical abuse, neglect, 
Alabama prisons. Here's the video. skin problem and it's causing great irritation and you saying you ain't getting treated for it can i see your legs yeah 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 oh my god and this stuff is so miserable i mean yes it's a bad bad skin it itches can i see your other leg man and they are not really just giving you no treatment this can be treatable yeah what about when the family of Mr. Vaughn, they were able to get pictures out into what we call free world. I was tagged. I was intrigued and upset. Here's what happened there. Wednesday, the horrific decline of her brother's health after receiving two photos of him this week with the message, get help. Get help. This was Vaughn just two days ago. This was September 21st. Do you see this? It's hard to look at, I know. I promise you it's harder for him to go through it. It's harder for the family to know this is happening. Now I'm highlighting this story because for some reason, this state prison has some kind of control over the local media in Alabama, but they do not control me. On that day on Friday, I said exactly what I would do. I activated a private investigator and a civil rights attorney to go to the state of Alabama. I went to the state of Alabama on Friday night. I called the prison facility and made them aware that one or two things were going to happen on Saturday. Either A, I would be assured that Mr. Vaughn was receiving medical care and his family could speak directly to him. Or B, you will have to call the local sheriff in order to arrest me from the premises of the institution of that particular jail. This is what happened. Cassie, the sister, I was able to make direct contact with her. I put her in contact with the civil rights attorney, Harry Daniels. Harry Daniels was able to talk directly to Mr. Vaughn on that Saturday and coordinated with Benjamin Crump and Lee Merritt. Now, Benjamin Crump, Lee Merritt and Harry Daniels are all representing Mr. Vaughn. Mr. Vaughn is alive. Mr. Vaughn was moved outside of that prison and placed in medical care. Senator John Ossoff received that segment launched an investigation into the prison system in Alabama. That investigation is currently ongoing. And now we have more. Put up the pictures. The families of two Alabama prison inmates who died. 
in the past few weeks are demanding answers from the state authorities after they received their loved ones with their bodies bizarrely missing. Major internal organs, they're gone. Both of these cases raise questions about the treatment and mismanagement of the bodies of 74-year-old Charles Singleton and 43-year-old Brandon Dotson, who were inmates in the custody of the Alabama Department of Corrections. Mr. Singleton died more than two years ago at a hospital that, that typically provides care for older inmates. Dotson was found dead two months ago in a cell at Ventress Correctional Facility. In Mr. Singleton's case, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, it's UAB, all right? Their pathology department conducted his autopsy before returning his remains. That's according to a report by WPDE. Court documents note that his family members had his body sent to a funeral home, but the funeral director had to tell them, quote, it would be difficult to prepare his body for viewing since it was already in a noticeable state of decomposition and was suffering from advanced skin slippage. The family was also informed that Singleton's body was missing all of his organs, gone, every single one of them, including his brain. The funeral director told the family, it's common practice during an autopsy to remove internal organs and place them in bags, but they should be placed back inside the body once the process is complete. Singleton's family contacted the university about the organs whereabouts, but reportedly received little to no information on the matter. Now, I did some research myself. These are regulated industries. You have to be certified, accredited by particular organizations in order to do this kind of work. That certification or that accreditation comes with a list of variables that must be adhered to per the rule. UAB released the state. Something is happening in Alabama. Obviously, we've been covering. Note this portion of the quote where it says exercise the franchise and held office in many southern states, because this is how you know that our ancestors were prospering as capitalists in this society during this time period, being as though they were able to run businesses, right. create franchises, hold elections in office as a franchiser. Right. Each business can elect one who is chosen, or they may select one who is handpicked to take an office or employment, meaning that the business can either elect or select its president, vice president, secretary, or treasurer, just to name a few things as an example. But somehow this phrase was merged into moving from business to more of a political sense. To the point where the definition of franchise is now being associated with both the right to vote in public elections and an authorization granted by a government or company to an individual or group, enabling them to carry out specified commercial activities. So they flipped it. With the franchiser being the person or company that grants a franchise and the franchisee being the person or company doing business under the name or mark of another franchise. 
it is an elaborate agreement under which the franchisee does business in accordance with methods and procedures prescribed by the franchisor. A collective bargaining agreement should ring a bell here, mm. which is nothing more than a legal binding contract. I share more about that here. Uh, what is this? You that might not know, for starters, collective okay, bargaining we, 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 I'm play, I'm is the process of negotiating the terms of employment between an employer and a group of promising employees. A collective bargaining agreement is a formally written, legally enforceable contract that could be valid up until any written specified time period between the owner or equivalent decision makers of an organization and its employees represented by an independent trade union. union. Sounding familiar at all to you yet? Union, Confederate States Union. Let's take the union workers step further. That was the Listen union. closely. According to the 1828 Webster's English Language Dictionary, the noun bargain is defined as, quote, an agreement between parties concerning the sale of property or a contract by which one party binds himself to transfer the right to some property for a consideration and the other party binds himself to receive the property and, and pay, pay the, consideration. the consideration. That's also employment. End quote. The application for employment. It goes on to say that the verb same thing. bargain the same thing. means to make a contract or conclusive agreement, often with four before the thing purchased, as to bargain for a house. A bargained with B for his farm. End quote. So with all of that being said, we can determine that the CB group of people that have paid no taxes can't vote and you put them in front of the voters. I'm not going to pay them no damn taxes. And so we say this to you, Mayor, Governor, President. If you think that they're that powerful, that you have to acquiesce and answer to them over us, then you tell them to vote for you in these next elections. Right. You tell them to support your Democratic National Convention. We're going to show you how, how we feel about the Democratic That's National right. Convention. Turn it up. Thank you. If you think you're going to have a peaceful Democratic National Convention in the city of Chicago while our people are starving, That's right. stay tuned. Yay, that's being held by the Indian child represents a binding labor contract or also known as an indenture of, of servitude, servitude mm -hmm. which is known nowadays as an application for employment or a work for hire agreement. Ooh. Same thing. And what changed. was this bargain, you ask? Well, who else was promised lots of things only once they have completed cultivating America from the ground up, like acres of land, for example, and they never received them? Right. 40 acres in a mule? According to the International Franchise Association, under the title Foundations of Franchising, it states, quote, every franchise relationship is founded on the mutual commitment of both parties to fulfill their obligations under the franchise agreement. Each party will fulfill its obligations, will act consistently with the interests of the brand, and will not act 
as to harm the brand and system. Right. This willing interdependence between franchisers and franchisees and the trust and honesty upon which it is founded has made franchising a worldwide success as a strategy for business growth. End so, quote. So it's not only in America in which all of this should make you wonder. Could it be possible that once a person signs up to vote, then that individual has now consented to entering into a legal binding contract? See, that's the problem. That's what, and I said that earlier, When once we signed up to become registered voters, electors, voters, whatever, that's the problem. That was the main problem. And we ended up becoming inadvertently citizens. Okay, now, the, of course, the question remains, are we first class, second class, or third class citizens? That's the problem. Inadvertently. Mr. Carmichael, do you see any change in atmosphere in the South? Do you think that we are approaching a more militant or revolutionary stage in the civil rights movement in the South? Yes, I, I certainly think so. I think we're moving now into a political arena. And I think that what Negroes are now tampering in, what they're tampering with, will touch the entire country to be very precise. For example, many Negroes who have registered to vote have been evicted from their lands in Lowndes County. People who have worked on, on plantations for 35, 40 years because they've registered to vote have been evicted. Listen. Listen, I, this, is a, this is a bomb. And this is, a, look, and, this, and certain people out there was holding activists like uh, Stokely Carmichael up high and other people of this era, knowing what they was doing was wrong. Knowing what they was doing was wrong. He admitted that once they registered to vote, they lost their lands. They lost their jobs. I told you. This worked against you. This wasn't for our benefit. And they used they used the vulnerable children. Let me not call them children. I know y'all got mad because I kept calling them children. But they used the vulnerable young adults. How about that? that were in colleges and universities, they got into their mindset. Who was they? The government. They sent to their agents and straight up said, look, this is going to be the agenda for us to take that land from you. But they not going to tell them that. What they going to tell the, you know, the young adults is, look, this is going to be a benefit for you and your family. Make sure you go out there and tell everybody to go register to vote. And everybody that owned land or farms or whatever was straight up saying, hell no. We about to lose everything if we do that. We becoming citizens. Ecclesiastic 7.26 And I find more bitter than death the women whose heart is snared and nets and her hands as bands who so pleasant Yahweh shall escape from her but the sinner shall be taken by her. Hi, you mentioned earlier a little bit about the family, but I was wondering if you could go into the role of women in the clan organizations a little bit more. I know you mentioned um, Sybil Jones and her encouragement of women to tell their husbands, be a real man and join the clan, and only men could join the clan. But then at the same time, how do you think they reconciled that sexism, like the discrimination against themselves, but then also their support of discrimination against a whole another group of people? It's been over 150 years since slavery legally ended in 1865, but the true trauma wasn't just the experience of slavery. 
but also the aftermath when hopes for equality and acceptance were crushed in the 1880 to 1890s due to a shift in beliefs about blacks and whites. When the Civil War came and it was time to free the enslaved, many white women retaliated. Female slave owners resisted the change by letting the Union authorities know they were loyal. There were many cases where female slave owners sought compensation when the American government abolished slavery in the District of Columbia. Others, Job 20 and 19, because he has oppressed and has forsaken the poor, because he had violently taken away an house which he built not wanted to keep their property by any means necessary. They went as far as to move their enslaved people away from the areas affected by the war in a practice known as refugeeing. When the Civil War ended, many white women negotiated labor conditions with freed black people. They tried to maintain control over the young African Americans by taking their children as apprentices. Apprenticeship was another form of labor. Although it was better than complete slavery, it was still not freedom. Ex-slaves were expected to work under the same master or mistress, often for meager wages and a specific time set, and it was not that better than the life they had before. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote something about it. He said a slave went free, stood for a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. This brief moment in the sun was when black communities started establishing schools, social assistance, and some legal protections. However, this progress was largely undermined by the white Southern elite. That includes white women. They swiftly passed laws known as the Black Codes. Their goal was simple, reintroduce obligations, burdens, and restrictions that would mimic slavery. The Black Codes were designed to take away the voting rights of black people. They were meant to stop them from becoming juries or state militias. Instead, the Job 24 and 13. There are all, there are, there are of those that rebel against the light. They know not the way thereof, nor abide in the path thereof. White people would create this complex system where freed black people could still be controlled. This system brought in substantial profits for the wealthy white women and men who both sold and bought the labor of those who were convicted. During this time, a black person could be sentenced to hard labor for 10 years for stealing just three eggs or a bowl of milk. But a 15-year-old black girl in Atlanta got a five-year penitentiary for taking 50 cents from another black child. The dominant faction made a huge amount of money, about half a million a year, and judges who sent strong black people to prison had much better chances of being elected. But control wouldn't have been possible without the threat of violence. That's where groups like came into play. They intimidated, brutalized, and murdered black people across the nation. The women's case was a separate but affiliated racist group of white Protestant women. They got more members through empowerment feminism. The first version of the KK emerged in Pulaski, Tennessee after the Civil War. It was established by men who were upset about the newly liberated black population. They were angry. Proverbs 4 and 16. For they sleep not except they have done mischief and their sleep is taken away unless they call some to fall. About their political rights and sought purpose, thrill, and a socially accepted platform where they could be violent. These early members wanted something new, but they wanted to keep it under a veil of secrecy, and they did just that. The KK created a strict organization with many ceremonies that would go perfectly with their hateful anti-reconstruction goals. During the starting days of the Klan, Women didn't actively participate, 
but they did sew their husbands and family members' clothes for the ceremonies. Women also had a symbolic role to play. One of the goals of these extremists, as they saw it, was to shield pure and innocent women from the frightening black people who were now a threat. Especially in its early years, the male clan held two conflicting views of femininity and womanhood. One was a fantasy, and the other was a concession to real people. Job 15:34. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolated, and fire shall consume the tabernacle of bridles. In their minds, white Protestant women were pure, virtuous beings whose main purpose was to support and serve men. In return, men would safeguard these vulnerable ladies from those sexually aggressive black men. In the second phase of the Klan came the women's KKK. This was a related but separate group specifically for white Protestant women. The early days of the WKKK were marked by conflicts within the Klan itself. One leader of the male Klan started a group called the Camellias. It focused on women and advocated for white supremacy so that he could increase his own influence. Another leader joined forces with a secretive women's society called the Queens of the Golden Mask. Eventually, the Golden Mask group prevailed and became the WKK. It was the first authorized in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1923. At its height, the WKK had branches in every state, especially in Arkansas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Indiana. Much like the male KK, the WKK had a structured system. Interestingly, the system had similar aspects to the Roman Catholic hierarchy. There were positions like the Imperial Commander, Claylifts, Clocarts, Cligraps, Claybees, along with the Clexter Clorogos. People in these positions were responsible for enforcing clan rules. They recruited members, collected dues, organized events, and so on. But all of these rules and activities were influenced by racism nationalism, fear of outsiders, and a determination to protect the family. In contrast to their male counterparts, the WKKK didn't often participate in lynching or other violent acts, aside from a 1924 incident where members paraded with gloves. Because of this absence of physical violence, many historians tend to see gay members, as well as women in racist movements in general, as obscure and relatively unimportant figures. They just see them as people who worked in the background of their men. But the fact is, the women KKK was very powerful. They were excellent manipulators. They used their social standing to further improve their agendas. Many of these members had organized social clubs before, so it was super easy for them to spread the word and destroy the reputations of political candidates or anyone else they deemed unworthy. These women tried to remove Catholic public school teachers, organized boycotts of businesses, and supported candidates who were aligned with the Klan. They increased their influence by providing food baskets to needy families. They also arranged events like weddings, funerals, speeches, parades, christenings, carnivals, and lectures. By organizing both ceremonial and social activities, these women integrated the Klan and its beliefs into the everyday life of American society. In their minds, all the good people were a part of the Klan. These groups were unsettling precisely because they seamlessly blended with small towns in America. WKKK didn't attract women because it was something new or unusual. No, it was popular because it aligned naturally with the lives of white Protestant Americans and their values and traditions. Many of these women viewed the Klan as a social club, an opportunity to have a good time with friends. But their shared commitment to racism and xenophobia was terrifying. Many of these Psalms 52 2 and 3 Their tongue devised mischief like a sharp razor working deceitfully 
Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteous self. White women were conservatives to the core. They were dedicated to the cause and had power within their communities. Some of these women were also active outside their homes. Lulu Markwell, for example, was the first national leader of the WKKK. She worked for women's suffrage in Indiana and other states. Daisy Douglas Barr led the Klan, but was also an esteemed Quaker preacher. This means that they had a huge impact on a much broader scale. As you can see, white women were not bystanders when it came to slavery and the slave trade. They were very much involved in the system as their male counterparts. The only thing is that many of these women were believed to be innocent and pure, while in fact, they had their own agendas and were proud to own slaves. They benefited from the slave market and wanted to expand their own riches. After all, they too were born in a system that exploited black people. This system shaped their morals, ethics, and values, creating wide-scale oppression and brutality. Yeah, it's, those are really important, fascinating questions, I think. Um, Sybil Jones, you mentioned, is Bob Jones' wife. He, she appeared at most rallies and was a very fiery speaker. And she would say exactly what, you, what you're describing, where she would harangue women to say, if your husband was a real man, he would be a committed com committed Klansman. Um, and really try to create this, this kind of dynamic where within the family, it would be really moving towards militants and moving towards commitment to the Klan. Um, that was an, an interesting dynamic, certainly, because the, the Klan itself, not surprisingly, is an incredibly patriarchal organization. So the role of women within the Klan was was rhetorically valued, you know. So and in a lot of ways, you know, the the history of white supremacy um, is largely about the, the preservation of the purity of white womanhood, these kinds of things. So, you know, putting women on a pedestal was something the Klan would do all the time. And so they would involve women and talk about how they were the most valued part of the larger Klan family. Um, but certainly not in a way that would resonate at all with breaking down that sense of patriarchy and creating any agency for these women politically or otherwise. Um, and I think, you know, the types of people it was recruiting and the types of families it was recruiting, I certainly didn't come across any instance where the women involved were conscious of the contradiction you describe, which, which is a contradiction that makes perfect sense in a broader context. But in that context, they certainly weren't articulating it as, you know, sort of the, the subordination of women and the subordination of African-Americans is having this kind of direct parallel. Um, and certainly you could make that critique, but within these families, it wasn't really part of the, the calculus that was going on at the time. I'm going to keep it like an island boy. I'm going to keep it like an island boy. I'm just trying to make it. And I'm an island boy. I'm going to keep it like an island boy. And I'm an island boy. I'm just trying to make it. And I'm an island boy. I'm going to keep it like an island boy. These streets keep calling me. They don't want me to leave the life behind. Staring at stars, wishing I had the time. But my kids need food and my girl needs me. Sometimes I dream that I'm finally free So baby, don't play me, I ain't no toy I'm a prisoner here, but I still make noise And I'm a child that I'm about it with all my boys I'm a street kid now, but one day I'll be an island boy I'm just trying to make it, I'm an island boy Island boy, I'm an island boy 
Good evening. Uh, the person, the, the, the group of uh, people who were attacked in uh, Erbil last night by the Iranians in the Mossad headquarters, it was actually the home or the offices and headquarters for uh, uh, Persho Design. Persho Design is an Israeli, the uh, trains uh, Mossad agents and uh, he had a meeting with some Mossad uh, agents last night and some Iranians who, from the opposition of the regime in Iran. So that's, uh, first of all, it's uh, good, very good intelligence by the Iranians and they hit the target and uh, killed this person and the people they were with. This person is, uh, he actually owns uh, the Falcon Group as well, a company called the Falcon Group. He is responsible of transporting. I spoke to you before about the uh, Syrian oil uh, in the uh, territories where the Americans control at the moment. Uh, it's been stolen from the Syrian uh, grounds by the Americans. This man, uh, Pershutia design, he used to smuggle all these oil to, uh, to Israel uh, by routes, I think, I believe some say that via Jordan as well. So this man was facilitating the Syrian oil to be transported to Israel without paying for it. So it was a direct hit to Israel. Uh, actually, uh, the uh, hit yesterday by the Iranians. So that's uh, as a retaliation to killing one of their generals. Uh, generals, and tonight the Iranians have bombed uh, a group of Islamist in uh, Islamist uh, group in Pakistan. Surprisingly. Uh, they had uh, helped some of the terrorists to, that bombed Iran a couple of weeks ago and killed over 250 people. And so that's kind of escalating quick uh, uh, the war in the Middle East. Uh, Americans tonight, today, they said they have captured uh, a ship in the sea transporting weapons from Iran to the Houthis in Yemen. The significant thing about this uh, uh, ship today, as the Americans are claiming, it's, uh, well, we know the uh, Iranian has been uh, giving the Houthis of Yemen weapons for decades, or for many years, not decades. And uh, it's no secret for anyone that Iran backs the Houthis and gives them weapons. But this uh, particular ship, the Americans are saying that they found missiles and bombs used against their ship in the Red Sea. So now Americans are actually finding a way or a reason or a fabrication of an evidence to bring Iran's name into the game, into the war. But Iran has done it already before tonight and uh, went and bombed Iraq and have and Pakistan and Syria yesterday, the group of terrorists they bombed as well in Syria. 
It's uh, backed by the West and weaponized and funded by the West, uh, you know, unfortunately. So there's three heads for Iran yesterday and today, and the Americans are actually now playing hardball. And the uh, Europeans, Italy, Germany, and uh, other countries are forming allies and sending warships to the Middle East as of tonight. So uh, this is kind of uh, Israel has withdrawn from a lot of uh, areas in Gaza. Uh, Hamas, the resistance, have taken over when the Israelis have left. So they didn't get rid of Hamas, they didn't get rid of the tunnels, they didn't kill uh, the resistance, and they didn't free their hostages. So basically, this whole war so far is a mess and catastrophe for uh, Israel and the United States. So that's why we're going to see some new uh, wars or uh, attacks in the next 48 hours. It's going to be imminent and really, really decides the fate. This week will decide the fate of the Middle East and decide the fate of the, the war with uh, Gaza, America, Iran and the resistance in the Middle East. Keep watching, guys. Love you all. I'm sure, I'm sure you're all asking yourselves one question. Why are the Arabs, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and UAE helping the Americans and the Israelis against Gaza? Because these countries are in business, are in bed with the United States. Egypt takes $50 billion for an aid from America for its army. $30 billion so far they have taken in aid to build infrastructure and help poverty in Egypt. Same goes for Jordan. Jordan depends on American aid, about $3 billion, $2.5 billion a year. They have taken $30 billion so far from America, all taxpayers' money. So America pays for other countries' armies, for other countries to build infrastructure. As for the Saudi Arabians, of course, and the UAEs, they pay for their security. At the beginning, they always used to say they are they pay for security in case Israel attacks them. And you know, um, so Saudi Arabia is America's biggest ally and at the same time is the country accused of doing 9-11, at least accused. And there is a just a court order against the Saudis to, to allow the Americans, the families of the Americans died in 9-11 to sue Saudi Arabia for tens and tens of billions. That, no, that those papers were put in a drawer in a desk of Donald Trump when he became president. And then he flew to Saudi Arabia for, remember that, and did that famous dance with a sword like George W. Bush and collected $450 billion in contracts from Saudi Arabia. So why the hell are going to arrest them? UAE and others, as you know, in, all, in every Gulf country, there is an American base. So in Qatar, there is the biggest one of 300,000 Americans. This is paid by the Arab countries, by the Gulf countries. They pay for these bases, for the soldiers, for the families and everything. Again, to protect them. But against who? Against who? In the last 20 years or 10 years, the whole world have uh, worked so hard in mainstream media and, and accusations that Iran supports terrorism. So as Iran, because it's Shia, in the Sunni world and the Muslims, they have convinced the people in the Gulf countries that Iran is your enemy, not Israel. And that was in advance before the normalization came.
And now a lot of that's why you see a lot of Arabs in the Gulf countries. They think Israel is a friend, and Iran is the enemy because the United States of America and the West and NATO said so. So it is. People ask why they have been because it's not about being an Arab or a Muslim. We have seen Jews in the UK, in, in, in where I live, uh, demonstrating and praying for, for Muslims, Palestinians. We have seen Christians down in the UK and all over the world in all the countries as much as Muslims in the streets in support for Palestine. Palestine is for Palestinian people, Muslims, Christians and Jews, not for Zionists. So it's about humanity here, it's not about the religion. Do not expect Saudi Arabia to jump in and help Palestine because actually they are Muslims. No, 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 complete. This is not a religious war. They used to lie to us and say it's a religious war, but it's not. Today, Yemen have closed the Red Sea and disallowed Israeli ships to go to Israel. So now they have been diverted to go to Dubai, which has the port of Dubai, which has become Israel's temporary port. Empty the ships there in trucks from Dubai through Saudi Arabia, through Jordan, Egypt, to Israel. So the Arabs and Muslim countries are helping Israel, the same country who is killing Muslims and Arabs on, on the other side, because of money, because of profits, because of, uh, of business, because of the, the, the presidency, the, the, the king to stay in power, to stay in his place. He wants to stay there and no matter what, he would give up his fortunes, his people's money, his feet, it doesn't matter, as long as he stays in power. So do not think ever. Let me give you an example, one, one last thing. In Syria, during the war in Syria with ISIS, where Hezbollah, the Lebanese resistance, entered Syria alongside with the, with the Russians and the Syrian army and fought ISIS and war. There is a village, you can go there, called Malula in Syria. It's a Christian village. It was attacked by ISIS. They raped the women and girls. They killed the men and they took the, 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 the nuns, insulted them, took their uh, covers off their heads. The whole Christian world stood and did nothing because they actually created ISIS. But who in the whole world went to Malula and fought to support the Christians, liberated it, rebuilt their churches, rebuilt the statue of St. Mary. It was Hezbollah, the Muslim Shias of South Lebanon, who went and fought to liberate the Christians and lost a lot of men defending the Christians. That, the West don't tell you that. It is actually documented on Google, Google it. So it's not a religious war. It's about people, Zionist people all over the world with money and power against the poor. They want to destroy them. They want to, they are watching the kids of Gaza dying in hundreds. They don't mean anything to them, trust me. They don't mean anything. Look at them in Saudi Arabia and everywhere. They, they've got festivals and parties and everything. I mean, this, this world is gone insane. So please stay sane so we can beat them. And we will. Because you know why? Because we're on the right side. Because if you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala God on your side, who can beat you? No one. Stay focused, stay positive, and this war will be won. We there is extensive evidence showing that this military campaign since October 7th in Gaza has been far and away the most intensive bombing campaign of the 21st century. Israel has relied on widespread bombardment, including with massive explosive ordnance in densely populated urban areas. This bombardment and the severe humanitarian restrictions have led to a catastrophe that veteran aid workers say goes beyond anything they have ever seen before. That over 70% of the housing units in Gaza 
have now been damaged or destroyed. Several of these government officials have talked openly about re-establishing Israeli settlements in Gaza. The current intelligence minister, among other senior officials, openly talks of permanently displacing Palestinians from Gaza. The defense minister declared a, quote, total siege, end quote, at the start of the war. The heritage minister posted a picture of the devastation, saying Gaza was, quote, more beautiful than ever, bombing and flattening everything, end of quote. All that destruction makes Gaza more beautiful than ever. Another Israeli lawmaker said, quote, the Gaza Strip should be flattened, and there should be one sentence for everyone there, death. We have to wipe the Gaza Strip off the map. There are no innocents there, end quote. And I can go on and on with other terrible quotes from leading officials. Jake, we have got to, as Americans, take a very deep breath. What is going on in Gaza right now is a horrendous humanitarian catastrophe. We're looking at 23,000 people who have been killed, almost 60,000 have been wounded, and two-thirds of the people who have been killed are women and children. You're looking at 70% of the housing units in Gaza that have been destroyed. Jake, if I use the word Dresden, Germany to you, you think about the horrific destruction during World War II of that city. What is going on in Gaza now in three months is worse than what took place in Dresden over a two-year period. This is a catastrophe. And now, according to the United Nations, after you have 1.9 million people displaced from their homes, they don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have medical equipment, they don't have fuel, what you are looking at is imminent starvation. Children are starving to death. So my view has been from the beginning, Israel has a right to respond to this horrific terrorist attack from Hamas. But you do not have a right to go to war against an entire people, women and children. And the United States Congress has got to act because a lot of this destruction is being done with military weapons supplied by the United States of America. And what the resolution that I'm introducing is about, it's consistent with the Foreign Assistance Act. It says that if American military assistance is given to any country, Saudi Arabia, Israel, any other country, it has got to be used consistent with human rights, international human rights standards, and American law. In my opinion, that is certainly not the case. We have a horrific humanitarian catastrophe. We cannot turn our backs on it. Congress has got to stop moving to protect children in, in, in Palestine. Israel's central bank says the war on Gaza has become a burden on the economy. The estimated cost may reach $58 billion by the year 2025. The central bank governor has urged the Israeli government to curb its public spending and cut interest rates from 4.75% to 4.5%. Israel has spent $6.6 billion in various aspects of its war, including funding for the more than 100,000 displaced people. Some $249 million have been put aside for mental and physical health care and the total cost of rebuilding in some areas could reach $174 million, including towns near the Lebanese border that sustained damage in cross-border fighting. 
Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told his ministers to share in the burden of sweeping budget cuts. His cabinet is meeting for a second day to discuss amendments to this year's budget. Netanyahu wants to increase military spending to help finance the war on Gaza. The conflict could cost Israel $24 billion this year. Let's bring in Stephanie Decker, who's live for us in Occupied East Jerusalem. Stephanie, so an Israeli cabinet meeting to approve the military budget, and there could be some fireworks. There are already fireworks, Folly. We understand one of the ministers walked out in a screaming match yesterday, according to one source, calling where to make these cuts is a political hot potato. Uh, just to give you, you used a lot of numbers there. One number that shocked me is that how much does this war cost Israel a day? $269 million a day. So that gives you just an indication of also in those words that what a burden this war is also on the Israeli uh, economy. As you mentioned there, it's not just funding the war, the weaponry, it is the reservists, it's feeding them, housing them, weaponry, and then it's the over 100,000 evacuees, not just from the Gaza border, but also from the Lebanese border in the north of Israel. They have to be housed in hotels. They also are being paid by this government, uh, thousands of shekels, a month. It is a very difficult discussion. You mentioned there, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the cabinet Sunday morning as these talks. Well, we begin this news hour with missile attacks in Syria and Iraq, which the U.S. is calling reckless. Washington has condemned Iran over the strikes. The Revolutionary Guard say they launched ballistic missiles that hit Israeli spy headquarters in northern Iraq. Missiles and drone attacks also targeted Erbil near the airport. At least four people were killed, six wounded. The prime minister of the semi-autonomous Kurdish region says the attack is cowardly. Tehran also targeted ISIL in Syria in retaliation for bombings in Iran earlier this month. Well, let's speak to Mahmoud Abdul Wahid. He joins us now from Baghdad. Mahmoud, I understand that the local authorities are saying that these were civilian areas that were hit? Well, that's what uh, the uh, regional government in, in Iraq's semi-autonomous Kurdish region says, that it's uh, uh, an act of aggression and uh, a violation of Iraq's sovereignty. Uh, those missile attacks that targeted, as it says, civilian areas, uh, leaving uh, civilian casualties, uh, deaths and uh, uh, injuries. But on the other hand, as you know, that Iran's uh, revolutionary guard uh, stated that it is targeted uh, spy headquarters and gatherings Thank you, Mahmoud. Well, let's now bring in Dorsa Jabari. She joins me here in the studio. Dorsa, you've spent an enormous amount of time for us in Tehran. Talk us through what Iran's thinking right now. What's the calculus for them at the moment? Well, they needed to respond. Uh, they've been uh, talking a big game since October 7th. And uh, given the recent developments on the ground inside Iran, the uh, attacks that were carried out in Kerman and the number of uh, Revolutionary Guard commanders that were assassinated in Syria and uh, what Israel has said, that about Iran being behind uh, Hamas, fully supporting them, and then the Houthis. So there's a number of different factors that came into play uh, to carry us to go. There is a few things Iran is trying to achieve with this. First is to target specific uh, people that they wanted to get. They claim that it was Mossad um, ground, training grounds or uh, facilities in uh, Erbil, and then in Syria, uh, uh, 
spots belonging to ISIL. The other thing is to deliver a message to the United States and Israel, uh, mainly that to reiterate Iran, uh, Iran's military might. It, it's well known in the Middle East. Iran has the biggest um, missile arsenal in the region. And using these ballistic missile long range, it's certainly going to deliver that message and a reminder to the U.S. and Israel that Iran has the capabilities. Uh, and the third is also to um, quiet some of the internal criticism Iran has been facing over the past few months for not doing enough, for not responding strongly enough to uh, what's been happening in the region in terms of how the United States and Israel have been moving forward and carrying out uh, various assassinations and attacks in regional countries. Iranian capital. Professor, this appears to have been a very targeted operation, seemingly a calibrated response. How concerned are you about regional escalation? Those fears have been very, very real for, for many watches since October the 7th. Everyone is concerned about escalation, except for apparently the Israeli regime and its American allies, almost from day one. In a concerning escalation, Iran has entered the fray in the Middle East, further ratcheting up tensions in the region. Iran-backed Houthis targeting an American ship in the Red Sea, while a missile attack in northern Iraq came dangerously close to the US Embassy. This is what the West has fe The Houthis have been the target of US and UK strikes for firing at ships in the Red Sea. Today, fresh aggression. A missile launched from Yemen hit an American tanker flagged for the Marshall Islands. The ship wasn't badly damaged, but it's the first time rebels have hit a US ship. With the help of God, a Houthi spokesperson says Yemeni armed forces targeted an American ship. The hit was precise and direct. Iran's foreign minister pointing the finger at America. The White House can't speak of its unwillingness for the expansion of war, he says, but at the same time expand the war to the Red Sea against Yemen. For months, the Biden administration has been concerned about the conflict in Israel and Gaza spreading. Now it essentially has the key question, is what will America do? The US condemned the strikes by Iran, branding them reckless. Two days ago, the president warned Iran. And tonight, the Houthis have a warning of their own. Any new aggression won't pass without a response and punishment, he says. Flying into Israel, Australia's foreign minister, as she calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Our next story is from the Red Sea. It has been 30 days and tensions in this critical waterway refuse to die down. The Houthis are still on a rampage. They continue to attack cargo ships, forcing shipping giants to reroute their vessels and invariably disrupt the global flow of trade. The US and allies are taking countermeasures, but their actions are far from dialing the tensions down. Let's just take a look at what unfolded in the last 24 hours and what impact it will have on shipping and global trade in the days ahead. Now to start with, on Sunday, the Houthis fired an anti-ship cruise missile towards an American destroyer. Fortunately, a U.S. fighter jet shot the missile down since the U.S. and the U.K. launched strikes against their launch sites in Yemen. Now remember, just last week, American and British warplanes launched dozens of airstrikes across Yemen. And these strikes were in retaliation to months of attacks on Red Sea shipping. 
On your screen are satellite images, in fact, of the damage that was inflicted on airports and other structures following the strikes. And immediately after the attacks, there was uproar in Yemen. Tens of thousands of Yemeni citizens gathered in cities across the country, protesting against the US-led airstrikes. They waved Palestinian flags and condemned America's actions. As the protests were underway, the Houthis also released this video. It showed the group holding military exercises, including mortar launches. Houthi leaders, meanwhile, threatened strong and effective response against the U.S. Listen to this. From this majestic field, we renew our pledge and loyalty to the commander. May God protect him to remain loyal and true to his directives, listening and obedient. And when meeting the enemy, we are steadfast. We are ready to sacrifice and we long for martyrdom. We in the 6th military zone assure our dear people and the free Arab and Islamic nation of our readiness to fight the battle of the promised conquest and holy jihad with America and Israel. Have the US and the UK responded to these threats? Yes, they have. In fact, speaking to reporters in Pennsylvania, US President Joe Biden called the strikes a message to Iran. He added that these strikes will continue if the Houthis continue their outrageous behavior. I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know we're not to do anything. We will make sure that we respond to the Houthis if they continue this outrageous behavior. In the UK, the British Foreign Minister David Cameron has also responded. He called the Houthi strikes unacceptable, illegal and dangerous. He said the strikes were limited and proportionate, but they were very much needed. And guess who else has issued a statement on the Red Sea meltdown? China. You see, the Chinese foreign minister was in Egypt recently, and during the visit, he said both Egypt and China are following developments in the Red Sea very closely. In fact, he expressed concern over the expansion of the conflict in the region and added that the priority right now should be on ensuring the safety and security of navigation. The situation in the Red Sea has escalated sharply recently and China is deeply concerned about this. The waters of the Red Sea are an important international trade channel for goods and energy. China calls for a halt to the harassment and attacks on civilian ships and for the maintenance of the smooth flow of global industrial and supply chains and the international trade order. You saw what happened. You heard the responses. Let's now discuss what comes next. What efforts are being taken to bring down the tensions? To start with, Qatar Energy, one of the world's largest exporters of liquefied natural gas, has stopped sending tankers via the Red Sea. It has done so to get security advice from other countries. Production, however, has not been halted. Qatar may be the first country to officially take this decision. But you see, others are also making similar moves. They are rerouting their ships away from the Red Sea to a longer route across the African coastline. And this, by the way, will not only increase time and the consumption of fuel, but also have a severe impact on global trade. The outcome could be inflation in several countries. I'm not the one saying this. Leading economists are. They say that due to the Red Sea meltdown, it's rising again. And this would essentially push the prices up globally. Arriving in Taiwan on a private trip. 
At least, that's the official explanation. A delegation from the United States, a former Deputy Secretary of State and a former National Security Advisor. Their arrival less than 24 hours after the election of Taiwan's new president doesn't appear to be a coincidence. First on the agenda, a meeting with outgoing President Tsai Ing-wen. She's been a reliable ally during her two terms, despite provocation from China. We look forward to continuity in the relationship between Taiwan and the United States under the new administration, and for common efforts to preserve cross-strait peace and stability. And a warm handshake from the president-elect. The relationship with the U.S. will be vital during his term in power. Thank you to the U.S. side for its long-standing firm and unwavering support for Taiwan. I believe that Taiwan-U.S. relations under the joint efforts of both sides will continue to move forward. Under the table, I think there is a main purpose of its visit, that is preventive diplomacy. The U.S. would like to prevent the newly elected William Lai to be more assertive or provocative. The buzzword around here for the last few days has been continuity, maintaining the status quo. That's what Taiwan's new president says he wants and the United States. But it's not yet clear if China is listening. Tony Chang, Al Jazeera, Taipei. Taiwan has lost one of its remaining diplomatic allies two days after it elected a new president. The Pacific island of Nauru says it will not recognize the government in Taipei. It's switching ties to China. Taiwan accuses Beijing of pressuring its allies. China claims Taiwan as its territory, a position Taiwan rejects. Um, of nations, small number to begin with, uh, of nations that recognized Taiwan. It's not a huge loss uh, because it is such a small country. And uh, Taiwan's unofficial relations with the U.S., for example, and other Western powers are of much more importance, uh, but a symbolic value. And it shows that China's attempts to intimidate Taiwan will continue. And it also gives the opposite KMT, the historically pro-China party in Taiwan's politics, the uh, political ammunition that it will use into Lai's new upcoming term. And so claiming that with the DPP administration, you will have continuing shrinking international space, lots of diplomatic allies, and then framing this as the DPP's fault rather than that of Chinese pressure. Now, I know you heard that. Fit the Broadway on the corner where we teach the word at. I run. 
ironically, that's the same place we used to serve packs. Had no love for my people, but I had to purge that. The scriptures are for us, bias like it's food, boo. Rep the blood again, how was shy like it's food, boo. Shout out to Haiti Levi with that boo, boo. We got it popping now. I put the blue ribbon out the seats. How was shy? Lama got in the Prince of Peace. We a nation comprised of kings and priests. We're keeping up a side and feast and weeks. And my sister sends a vow, don't even calling. Views getting that dirty, money not talking. Better answer the phone when he's calling. Spiritual treasure falling like it's falling. Yeah, yeah. Spiritual treasure falling like it's falling. Yeah, yeah.